Welcome back, Pocket Change listeners. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome back Dan Veroni, who is the CEO of Potomac Core Consulting out of the greater Washington, D.C. area. Welcome back, Dan. It's a pleasure to be with you, Kate. And and I look back in the calendar, I realize that I think a year has passed since we spoke last, and it has flown by. Has it been a year already? I think it's been, it's like, oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. It, it doesn't seem like that, does it? Oh, no. no. I think we we stay in pretty good connection. We stay in touch. We we message and we share and we like. Yes. You know, and that's probably why it doesn't seem like a year. Because I I was looking, is it it a year? Well, when did I talk to Kate last? So I was like, oh, okay, we just messaged it. That's why. You're right. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. And a lot's gone on in the past year. I mean, we've seen so much happening. And, you know, I mean, I was just explaining before we when we were podcasting before the podcast, um, you know, all the great things that, you know, we've seen Helios with Ruth joining our team and becoming part of our production. And you've had some some great stuff happening in your family as well. Just, you know, getting healthy, staying healthy, moving forward. Yeah, yeah, it it uh, been a uh, challenging uh, challenging last year because uh, my wife had a, a non malignant tumor in her heart and thankfully diagnosed in her physical uh, last August and uh, they took it out surgically last October and interestingly enough uh, they did it robotically the surgery was performed robotically and my wife was out of the hospital six days post surgery. And back to work late January, she's doing great. Uh, that is just such a huge relief, but a, just a uh, big praise for technology, innovation, and modern medicine. Isn't that the truth? What a blessing. So happy to hear it. And, you know, you and I were connected through that whole journey, and I'm just so grateful that she pulled through. What a very strong lady, though. Yeah, she is incredibly strong. Uh uh, my wife is a medical professional. Uh, she's a labor and delivery nurse. And um, what was really impressive to me, Kate, was the day I took her in for surgery, we were in, in the pre-op area. And she's there joking and kidding with the doctors and, and the nurses. I mean, I'm a nervous wreck. And after I took her home uh, from the hospital, I said, sweetheart, what was that about? She said, well, first of all, you know, I scrub for surgery pretty often. I'm a medical professional, and these are my peers. <laughs> so, <laughs> so why wouldn't I be joking and kidding with them? And I just said, okay. <laughs> but uh, my wife is incredibly strong. She has, uh, she's very determined, has a very upbeat personality. And if anyone uh, having a baby, uh, you really want her to be the nurse in the delivery room because uh, she's a coach, she's a cheerleader, and she gets new moms through it really well. That's so powerful. And I think it's, you know, I remember um, my one experience because it was really painful. And after that, I was like, well, I don't run around stubbing my toe twice. I'm not going to do that twice. (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't like it. Um, (laughs) I mean, I like the end result. It's amazing. I love being a mom more than anything in the entire world. Um, But I remember we had a... uh, we had a, a, a good 
labor and delivery nurse in the room with us, but my mom yeah. was, um, she had done labor and delivery for a number of years. And let me tell you, so it's my stepmom and she and my dad met, you know, in, I want to say Christmas of 2000, right? Oh, and this, this is, Canada is the biggest small country you'll ever live yeah. in or, or yeah. visit. And so my uh, my parents, they get together, they meet. And it's funny because my now this is really bizarre, right? My dad's cousin, his first cousin, was married to this lovely lady who was uh -huh. my stepmom's daughter. Yeah. <laughs> so he used to call my dad Papa Cuz. And um and and so they brought her over to the to the Christmas party, the family Christmas party and whatever. And that's how they met. And my dad was just smitten, just loved this woman to bits and pieces till the day wow. he met. Isn't that awesome? That's great. It was so wonderful to see. And so what was interesting is as they're progressing through their relationship, they, you know, you tell stories, you're getting to know each other and yeah. things like this. And my dad was talking about the labor and delivery of my sisters and yeah. whatever. Yeah. And my one sister was born in Edmonton in 1970. Mm-hmm. My dad says, but those were the days when you had to share a room. Like you didn't have the option for a private room here in, in socialized healthcare. And so my dad goes, yeah, he goes, and it was crazy. The woman in the room who was sharing the room with us had this 14 pound baby. It was a Portuguese speaking woman. Wow. And there was this little, and my stepmom looks at him. I'm just going to call her my mom. My mom looks at him and says, did you say 14 pound Portuguese baby? And my dad goes, Yeah. And she goes, are you the man who yelled at me for strangling his baby while I was trying to burp her? He goes, are you the nurse who strangled my baby when she was only two days old? <laughs> oh, for gosh sakes. She delivered my sister. She was the labor and delivery nurse. Oh, my God. 40 Talk about years. a small world. Right? It's, a, it, it's absolutely a small world. Uh, my wife and I will be out shopping uh, and we'll run into someone that she help deliver the, the child and the child is there sometimes three, four, five years old. And, and it's like, they're, they're automatically reconnected. Yeah. It's, it's such an intimate and just a powerful experience. Like I, it is so hard to explain the emotions of having somebody yeah. there who, yeah. who understands, yeah. who cares for you and you can feel yeah. that care, you know, and we had a really great labor and delivery nurse, which my mom kind of took over from, like, it was very bizarre because there's like these competing RNs in the room. And I said, yeah. mom, you're actually here for a different purpose. She's like, no, but you know, we need to do it this way. No, actually it's, that's not your job. You're here as a visitor. And, but I'll tell you what, if you have a negative experience, it sits with you for a long time. And our release nurse, the one who was there postpartum for the first couple of days, she was awful. She was so difficult. She was, yeah. like, she would say things to you like, oh, like she said to me, well, you need to remember that baby comes first. And obviously for you, that's going to be a hard lesson to learn, she said to me about, because I, like I said to her, like she came in and said, you should feed the child before you leave. And I was like, well, I just literally finished feeding her. So she's fine. Like I'm 24 years old. I've worked with children for a number of years. I'm young, married. I get it. But at the same time, I'm not stupid. Right. And yeah. she said that to me and I was just like, you know, and you're you're just all over the place inside. And so, like, com having somebody who's there, who's compassionate, who's loving, it is yeah. so powerful. And all the grace to your wife, because that's yeah, she's just powerful. She's in her, definitely in her element. Um, but I'm happy to say that she's doing well. 
Uh, so she's good. happy. She's healthy. And um, uh, we feel blessed. Yeah. Yeah. That's so wonderful. And, you know, I wanted to tell you, um, you and I had a really, really great chat after our last after our last recording. And you said something to me that stimulated me a little bit that got me sure. thinking. Sure. And, you know, I'm, I'm the type of gal who I, I like to do continuous improvement and continuous learning. And I wanted to let you know, I did a mini MBA last year and it was inspired by our conversation. That is wonderful. I am so happy to hear that. Incredibly proud of you and not surprised. Uh, <laughs> so good for you. Good Thank for you. Good Thank for you. you. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. It was accelerated. And I felt like, like, you know how people say you're going to drink from the fire hose? It was like they put me in front of the fire hydrant and they <laughs> there was no hose. It was just like a straight yeah. flash to the face. And it was hard. But, um, you know, it was really worthwhile. And so thank you so much for giving me that little nudge and the pep talk, because it really put me on the right path to a different level of continuous improvement. You, you are very welcome. Um, you were ready for it. Uh, you were ready for uh, what was going to come next. And uh, I am happy to have been a small part of it. That's uh, wonderful. So wonderful. So talk to me about industry. What's, what, what, what do we see shaking in our industries these days? Like, let's switch gears and, and dive into this. You know, um, it's been interesting. So the last time we talked, uh, my book, Reimagining Growth, had launched recently. And as part of the, the book launch, I have had a lot of different conversations with executives in different industries and done a lot of podcasts and a lot of news interviews. And one of the things that really percolated up, so as you know, Tom McCord does a lot of strategic plan work. And our biggest outgrowth of this sort of chronic uncertainty that's happening in the world today is that industries uh, in their work with their trade associations are no longer looking at the next two or three years, but they're looking at the next five or 10 years. So here's what's driving that. So as we know, when we look uh, at the challenges related to China and Russia, uh, there are industries rethinking their supply chains. And that has serious implications. And serious implications mean the following, that supply chains are going to have to be restructured and rerouted. Now, that's easier to say than it is to do because some of the supply chain challenges uh, have a lot to do with sourcing materials or sourcing minerals. Some of these things may be uh, only available in China or in Russia. Um, and if we're not going to have sourcing from those countries, then where are we going to get those raw materials? And then how can we adapt and readjust our supply chains? So when you and I talked, what was going on uh, was a lot of the uh, broken supply chain, right. right? And while supply chains, while, while some will observe that supply chains have healed, uh, I identify that as temporary because supply chains uh, are about to transform and, and reposition. So along with that, how we're going to reroute and reconfigure and rethink our supply chains, um, there is automation and technology that will also be part of supply chains uh, as well. So this is really big. It's 
really significant, uh, significant from a perspective that companies and really industries uh, are forced to rethink what it's going to be. So a year ago, you and I were uh, talking about things such as nearshoring or reshoring, right. nearshoring, you know, really establishing or strengthening regional partnerships like U.S. Canada, U.S. Mexico. Um, uh, but now, but now I think it's it's not only nearshoring and reshoring; it's rethinking supply chains in terms of how we're going to source, how we're going to source minerals. That's massive. Massive. It's just, yeah, it's unbelievably massive, and you know these are these are challenges that when you look at the modern world, uh, there's there's shipping, there's rail, there's freight, and this all needs to be refigured. So, when you're rethinking supply chains, you're thinking about your entire global corporate strategy. Your entire global corporate strategy. You're not just thinking about, you know, delivering your product. You're now forced to be fully engaged with the value chain of your company. Now, the work that we do uh, at Potomacor in building these industry trade association strategic partnerships is we encourage uh, industries to work with their trade associations to build out these strategic partnerships, especially now, because they need to have a built-out ecosystem that gives them the ability uh, to extend their reach across the globe. And the value chain can be massive depending upon the industry. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So when you talk about um, organizations or, you know, aligning to their 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 trade associations and creating those strategic um those strategic relationships. What does that really look like? Say you have somebody who's in, <clears throat> let's pick something ambiguous, um, not not like, you know, I mean, like automotive, for example, not ambiguous, but massively huge, where they source parts and minerals and supply from around the world. Sure. You think about a strategic partnership for, for something like that. You know, are you looking at a, across a spectrum or are there specific groups that you would recommend? So what's really interesting, so um, every industry has its own ecosystem already. Right. Uh, the work that we do is we encourage industries to engage their trade association to identify trade associations throughout the value chain to build these partnerships. Uh, so that's especially helpful in the, in, in the following way. So, you know, for years, you know, it, it's not just a U.S. auto market. It's a global auto market. Yeah. So because it's a global auto market, uh, where are you going to source parts and supplies throughout the world? Mm -hmm. And then how are you going to build those relationships? And as you look about the the globe, Western Europe through the European Union has its uh, has a set of uh, rules and regulations. It's got its own regulatory structure. The U.S. has its own regulatory structure. Canada has its own regulatory structure, so on and so forth. And what these ecosystems can do is really uh, extend the reach of the industry through the trade association because the industry trade association, in this case, 
the Global Automakers Trade Association, the Alliance for Automotive Automotive Innovation, uh, can build out relationships with its peers in, in not only in the value chain locally, but in the value chain internationally. Oh, wow. That's powerful. You know, it, it's, it's very powerful. And what I learned in writing the book and then what I've learned since the book has come out and talking to a lot of different industry executives is that the global market has increased in complexity, uh, so much so that these strategic relationships between the industries and their trade associations are incredibly more important than they were a year ago or two years ago. Mm-hmm. Because the trade association becomes the neutral integrator of of ideas, the aggregator of information, and then the curator of everybody's information. What the trade association has the ability to do here in the United States or here in the Washington, D.C. area is to really lead and convene. And one of the things I've always respected about trade associations is that people with differing views can come to the table. Yeah. Right. And and if you've got fierce partisanship here in the U.S., especially in Washington, as you do, what the trade association can do is they can be the neutral integrator of ideas and information. They can bring all sides together and, and they can brainstorm whatever's next. And and that is that is especially powerful. Well, I think it is. I mean, because I, and, and, and I was going to ask a question about the political landscape, because I think, you know, when we're being driven to change the way that we behave because of international conflict and sure. perhaps a lack of morality in terms of what we would believe to be the right. Right. Um, there, there are certainly going to be um, political ramifications to that. I mean, certainly um, the left and the right can always come together on the fact that, you know, we have an illegal war happening and people are being, you know, killed and displaced right. at a rate that is unacceptable. Um, we can agree that we have concerns with how people are behaving with information and using the things that we yeah. put on the Internet. Right. I mean, we can we yeah. can confirm that we see meddling within our political infrastructure from these two massive bodies, right? And so it would be really remiss of us not to have somebody in the middle who isn't pointing the finger. I mean, because here in Canada, we're having right now um, a really big finger pointing contest over which party has accepted donations from the Chinese. And here's the thing is that none of them are absolved. Every single one of them has either knowingly or unknowingly participated in this contest. And so to have an independent or a neutral body who behaves as such, I mean, we all come to work with our biases and we we have our belief systems sure. and our beliefs that drive how we behave. But if we have that trade association that's in there to help negotiate and manage that, and as I, I really liked what you said, be that ideas integrator, there's so yeah. much power in that. There is, um, I will tell you here in the United States, it is illegal to accept donations from foreign individuals or foreign countries. It's illegal. So uh, it can't it can't happen here in the U.S. But one of the things I'll share with you, and, and you probably saw, and I remember I shared it with you. I wrote uh, an op-ed article for Market Watch last fall on energy. And Kate, this is absolutely fascinating to me because you know, you and I, you're in Canada, I'm here in the U.S., and we're watching this global energy issue. And it's really uh, interesting to me because it's time to really take a number of steps back and say, well, well, wait a minute. 
we all want the same thing. Mm-hmm. We all want the same thing, right? So the idea, so look, there's a lot of new technology. It's not just EVs. There's hydrogen cells. There's all new technology. I mean, I'm telling you in the next 25 to 50 years, uh, the automotive industry as we know it is going to completely transform. It's going to completely transform. So the issue is, should it be focused on delivering one kind of vehicle or should we have a strategy, either a national or a global strategy that says we are going to put together a 25 year roadmap and we are going to come up with the cleanest, most efficient, most effective energy uh, resource, one that prevents us from bad actors internationally, mm-hmm. right? So from my perspective, that means that both sides have to come to the table. I'm sorry to say that. Both sides have to come to the table and both sides have to give something. Absolutely. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that there will have to be domestic production uh, of oil in the short term. But that doesn't mean, Kate, it absolutely doesn't mean that the oil companies that are producing the oil in the short term can't make it lower lower uh, carbon footprint. Um, yeah. Because yeah. the answer is they can. They have, but they can still go further. And, and from my perspective, uh, I could see a universe whereby that there is more here in the U.S. domestic drilling. Uh, we open up the pipeline between the U.S. and Canada, and we just say, yeah, we're going to allow that to flow. But here's the understanding. The understanding is, is that we're going to make significant investments in reducing CO2 emissions for whatever we uh, put in into trucks, cars, tractors, whatever, in the next five years. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, in the meantime, uh, we create a universe by which that there's a, what I would call a universal access, universal rights of way, that every consumer here in the United States or even in Canada can have the ability to tap in whatever energy source they want to tap into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, you know, I, I understand profit motive. We all want to make money, but there's plenty of money to be made across the entire energy industry, mm-hmm. whether you be in biomass, natural gas, uh, electricity, whatever it is. Uh, there is enough, There, there is a wealth of smart people and science and technology and engineers uh, that can help us build this 25-year roadmap. Uh, This can come together through an energy ecosystem. This can happen through the energy trade associations, and they can envision a new and different future. So I've heard, uh, for example, the CEO of Chevron uh, on some of the business channels here in the United States saying that they're making significant investments in green energy. Uh, that's terrific. But the point is, the point is, what can we and what are we doing now to make the current gasoline burn even cleaner than it already is? Mm-hmm. So in my mind, I don't see what both sides are yelling about. I only see uh the innovative opportunities the collaborative opportunities and the win-win if everybody comes together in an energy ecosystem right they're already there and 
they unite around pre-competitive issues. Those pre-competitive issues have a lot to do with regulations, right? Yeah. Uh, and and distribution, right? Okay. Um, and 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 workplace safety, right? Mm-hmm. So the tax structure, all of these things can be worked out if they, the the whole of the energy industry, everybody from clean all the way to to petroleum come together in an ecosystem and they come up with a 25-year roadmap. So here's why I'm saying it, because one of the other things that's happened since you and I have spoken is that energy prices have fluctuated. And here in the United States, you know, we've got like 60% of the American people living from paycheck to paycheck. And if your gasoline costs are really high, uh, it's tough to live. So it's not just the cost of gasoline. The cost of gasoline influences the pricing of food. So how does it do that? Well, they're input costs. If you're going to ship and refrigerate produce or meat from one place to another, you've got to refrigerate it, and that requires energy. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got to ship it, which requires gasoline. So if the cost of that energy is higher, the cost of the food is going to go higher. So in my mind, I'm saying to myself, you know, we've met the enemy and it's us. And it's up to all of us to come up with a more viable uh, universal solution that says, we're going to have a 25-year roadmap. We're going to all come together as an energy industry in the ecosystem through our trade associations. And we're going to build this 25-year roadmap. And oh, by the way, we're all going to give something, whatever that something is. Yeah. Because in the end, we we all win. Absolutely. And and I think the thing is, is that it, this is where partisan politics become a problem yeah. because, yep, you know, we'll have, I mean, what we're seeing in Canada right now is our greatest food producers, like the people who are selling our groceries, are making record profits right now. And so they've been summoned to come and speak to Parliament to say, how are you making all of this money if your costs are so high? Right. And you're selling as high to cover those costs. Why are you seeing this very large um, excess of cash and your sh- your shareholders are getting wealthy on the backs of people who can't afford to drive to the store, let alone buy the celery that's on the shelf, right? I mean, no. I'll tell you, Dan, In like we're seeing a bit of an ease right now. Um, right. We've seen our energy costs go up, like our gas, like vehicle gas went up by... I want to say 17 cents this week, just this week per liter. We're at $1.479 per liter um, to fuel a vehicle. And we're fortunate. If you go to Vancouver or you go to Toronto, they're paying over $2 a liter. It's, I mean, you think mm-hmm. about that and it's just like, okay, I, I understand some of the metric around that, but it's, it's, it's very excessive. And even more so when you see that translate over into your grocery costs and, right. you know, our family was having a, a discussion this this past week. Um, I got all of our utility bills and everything in, you know, first of the month kind of thing, mid first week. And every single one of our utility bills had increased, I would say, probably 40 percent. We're a very, very conservative use family. We don't leave lights on. We took our put garbage out once every three weeks because we recycle and compost so robustly. Um, you know, we we turn water off. I mean, so we're doing, we've now as a family had conversations about conservation at an even greater level of making sure that, you know, when we're not using something, it's a hundred percent off. 
we're we're talking about not hand washing dishes anymore so that we can put them in the dishwasher because the yep. dishwasher uses less on the eco, right? So what 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 I would tell you is um in my experience, consumers are doing a lot more than they ever have. Yeah. Uh, but then again, consumers are also bearing the brunt of these higher costs. So this is why it it's sort of um whether it be Canada or the US, we can't be run uh, on either extreme. No. Uh, and and there must be a middle ground. And that middle ground must start with what are we going to do to stabilize and lower price and costs? Um, and then if there, are, if there are concessions we need to make in the short term, what are they? And if they involve uh, more domestic drilling, then what are the drillers going to do to lower the carbon footprint? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's sort of, uh, to me, from my perspective, but again, there is a disconnect, I think, uh, you know, so when I when I heard last week, so here in the in the U.S., the what's called first the consumer price index, which is a measure of inflation, came out. People talk about how moderate inflation had moderated. Well, it was still up over five percent from a year prior. And here in the U.S., it's still uh, more than two times of the Federal Reserve's target. So prices are still too high. So the next day, the producer price index comes out and it says uh, producer prices have fallen. And and then I just said, so let's see, what is the average price per barrel of gasoline? It's now up over $82, right? So what does that mean? Those same producer costs, the producer prices are going to go up. And what's that going to mean? Folks in Canada and folks in the United States, we're going to be paying more at the food store. Mm-hmm. And and I just said to myself, well, that's an anomaly. It's a one-month figure because we all know what's coming. So gasoline, uh, the national average now is is inching towards $3.70 per gallon. And uh, candidly, I, I'm concerned with the price of gasoline. So OPEC has said that it's going to restrict production. Uh, and with that happening... Price per barrel is going to go up again. I think it goes up over $100. And I think gasoline prices here in the United States could reach or exceed by July 4th $5. Holy smokes. Yeah. Yeah. So and 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 then what does that do to what does that do to food prices? Yeah. Again, it's sort of like, you know, so the other part of it is that for folks that don't own homes here in the United States, you know, you're renting an apartment. And if you're renting an apartment, uh, and you're paying utilities monthly. So if if it's part if if you're paying it to the landlord so they can pay the bill, you're going to pay more there. Mm-hmm. But if you're paying directly to the utility company, you can expect those prices to go up too. So it, it it's it's where things are right now, and that's why. So that's why I'm writing a paper uh, on energy. And it's a white paper, and it should be out, uh, I think, probably sometime early to mid-June. I'll have it done. And depending on how well the paper goes, I may just write my second book on energy. Mm-hmm. I think, it, you know, it sounds, it, it you know, and what would be really cool if you do walk down that path is recommendations, right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, it, it, this is where I think um, lobbyists get it wrong, right? Yeah. They're they're lobbying yep. for the partisan. They're not lobbying for the people. And and this is you know, yep. 
Organizations need to know a compass. They need to know where to go. I've got this really great information and I, I, I see it, but how do I actually implement it and make it work in an organization that I'm international? You look at mobile, Exxon, for example, right? right. Exxon's right. A, they're, they're an international right. um, body. Right. And so right. you think about what they yeah. they could do and you you think about those different regulatory bodies and how you actually tap into those bodies and building strategic relationships at a corporate level that are to serve the greater outcome of the compass right like if i'm told yeah. as a ceo go this direction well right. hey i'm going to go that direction right so so here here's what's interesting so here in the united states uh the U.S. economy is consumer-driven. 70% of the U.S. economy is driven by the U.S. consumer. The more it costs, the less they buy. Mm -hmm. And that squeezes growth, and that impacts companies. And it's not only purchasing, it's not only a purchasing of products, it's the purchasing of services. So that's why this is an issue that long-term needs to be fixed. Absolutely. You, you know, know even more so as you start to see regulations change. So you talk, if we come all the way back to where we started full circle and you start talking about reimagining and putting together a new global supply chain, these are the things that have to be figured out first because how can you right. reconfigure something that right. needs it based off of the fact that we can't get raw materials out of somebody who doesn't like us anymore or we don't like them or there's a morality or what have you. Um, and then we have things like you know, in Canada, we have net zero by 50-50, which I think is not going to happen. I think it's unrealistic for a country like ours in where we live. I mean, let's be realistic. You're not eliminating fossil fuels by 50, 2050 or 2050 is what it is. Sorry. Like it, 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 it's, it's just it's sort of, you know, it, you know, it, again, it's OK to have uh, ambitious targets and ambitious goals. Uh, but reality needs to be baked in that cake somewhere. 100%. And it's just like, I, I mean, I went home to the Yukon in February. And I'll tell you, there are still people driving vehicles from the 1980s and the early 1990s up there, right? How are you like, is the government going to be handing out EVs to everybody? Like, oh, what are we now? Oprah, you get a car and you get a car like <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's ludicrous to think. I understand the intent behind it, but I think it's a grandstand approach. And so you think about, you know, ESG, for example, very hot topic. It's a the number one topic that organizations are moving sure. towards right now in the race towards 2050, yeah. right? Um, we're now at the point, I want to say in 2024 or 26, where we're going to see um, reporting on scope three emissions, which is a direct impact to your supply chain providers. Where are you getting it from? How much are they spending yeah. in their footprint? And like, those are very, very pressing issues when you pair yeah. it with global view. And I, I, I'll be very honest with you, Dan, I don't think that people are at all in our governments being strategic in how they're thinking about this like it literally is a zoom out activity where you have to come out as a global organization and yeah. sitting at cop 20 whatever talking about all of these things let's start talking about actually doing things don't pledge something to me tell me what you've done and where we're going together as we're hold hands to get there yeah it's sort of you know we've got governors like the governor of the state of california and the governor of the state of new jersey that have come up with these ambitious uh, targets, you know, we, we're not going to have uh, 
internal combustion engines here after 2033 or 35. And I'm just saying to myself, so you're in a state that mass transportation isn't as robust. Uh, I lived a number of years in New Jersey. I can tell you mass transit is pretty non-existent. Yeah. And, and as a result, so for the people that can't afford an EV, and oh, by the way, as we sit today, they are more expensive than the internal combustion engine. So, so, so it, it's like you've got to – I understand the ambitious goals. I understand the, the big, hairy, audacious ideas. But what I really understand is, is that you've got to reconcile the ideal and the real. Mm-hmm. And you reconcile the ideal and the real when you bring all sides together and and you create an environment where everybody wins. Ultimately, in this ecosystem uh, that I'm talking about for the energy, ultimately the consumer wins. The consumer wins the following ways. One, they they can it's consumer choice. They can choose whatever form of energy they want. The uh, second part of the win is the uh, energy companies will all be profitable, which is fine. Uh, and and the third win is energy security equals energy stability. Absolutely. <laughs> energy stability is a contributing factor to st- stable prices, right? Not the whole not the whole piece of the pie. It's a contributing factor of that pie in terms of price stability. But pricing stability uh, has a lot to do with you know with with increasing costs i mean so that's kind of where it is so at the end of the day um i see a lot of opportunities uh but opportunities if we come together uh opportunities if we come together and we leverage uh an energy ecosystem uh to build a long-term strategy and what here's what you'll find interesting is that you know there's a proclivity uh here in in the u.s that we're going to start to work with regulators and elected officials the minute we start coming up with ideas. Uh, my suggestion, my strong recommendation is to not do that, but instead uh, to build this ecosystem through the trade associations. And then through that through that relationship, go to the consumers and get them to buy into what that roadmap is going to be. Because after that, then how are the regulators and the, and the elected officials going to disagree with you? Because you already have got ownership from the consumers. So I, I see the, the time that we're in now because it's so disruptive, I see it as opportunistic. That if we think of things differently, we can come up with bigger and better solutions. And we have to stop limiting ourselves to old ideas and, and a, uh, a far left or a far, far right perspective and just say, well, well, wait a minute, how can we rethink this? How can everybody win? Well, I think what you're also speaking to is consumer autonomy, right? Like when we talk about eliminating internal combustion engines in vehicles, for example, you're taking my choice as a consumer away and you're forcing me into something that I may or may not want, right? And and I think that, you know, your earlier point of having producers produce in a more clean and efficient and effective way, producing, and then producing a product that is Uh, more accessible, clean, and and you know, allows people to pick the standard of what they want, right? I mean, if we can do an electric vehicle, surely there are things that we can clean up. And we've seen it in the automotive industry, for example. You've seen it. I have an eco boost on my vehicle. So every time I stop at a stoplight, my car stops idling and it turns itself off, right? I mean, same here. 
that's powerful, right? And that that does save gas. It's more economic. I get 700 kilometers to a tank of gas, right? Like, I mean, I have a very efficient vehicle, but you know, I'm also very fortunate, and I, I recognize my position of privilege to be able to purchase a vehicle that de- that provides those things to me. It, completely agree, and and that that ability to choose uh, is absolutely essential. And so, so I think uh, I think that's why everybody coming together through ecosystems, having these trade associations work directly with consumers, I think, is a way forward. I agree. Yeah, it's, you know, and and the other thing, too, is and I just want to touch on this a little bit, too, is just because my strategic mind is just going bonkers right now. Like, I'm probably going to be thinking about this podcast all day now. So thanks, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. That's where you say sorry, not sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's 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 why I have these conversations. I'm trying to I am motivating people to think differently. And if they think differently and they see things differently, then we'll get solutions. We will. And and I think that you've also hit on a couple of points in terms of, you know, value chain and supply chain structures that already exist that aren't being leveraged to their full potential or capacity. And I think that there's a very significant miss both on the consumer, the organizations who are producing oil and gas or, you know, groceries, whatever, as well as our regulatory regulatory bodies to actually come and leverage those trade associations for what it is that they can do. Like I think they almost like our trade associations are living in shadows. Like I don't feel like they're well known or well understood or the structures are, are um, even something that people really make or take note of. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. I I completely agree. You know, uh, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to someone uh, on my team late yesterday and the person said, well, how's it going? I just said, you know, uh, I see this, I'm optimistic and I see this as a very opportunistic time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that, that says a lot about you, right? I mean, you know, it's, (laughs) you know, you're, I'm the same way. I see something and I'm like, oh man, I could totally just, you know, I could jump in there metal around like and and that's you know that's the one thing it's funny because people will often say oh that organization needs a kate (laughs) (laughs) of course it does who doesn't need a kate who doesn't need a kate but you know i i think that there's there's just so much opportunity and there's so much um there's so much great abundance that comes with that and with that mindset, particularly when we start to talk about collaboration and we start to think about, you know, we're not thinking about the me, we're thinking about the we. And I think that that is really important because, you know, um, I, I I know I have, I have an 18 year old and she's going to be around for a number of years and I might have little grandchildren at some point. Maybe I'll have grand dogs, maybe a grand cat. I don't know. But um, at the end of the day, whatever she inherits, is it's important. It's meaningful. I don't want her living in a wasteland where, you know, she can't go outside and enjoy a walk because the air isn't clean or she can't go get in a vehicle and take a drive to the country because she can't afford one. That's that. Those are those are two very different dynamics. Um, but at the end of the day, that's really where we're headed. We are our own worst enemy. Yeah. You know, what's interesting uh, to me is that collaboration is a very powerful resource. Uh, it you get the collective mind share uh, that can brainstorm new and different things. 
So what you'll find interesting uh, in research work that we do, it's my team and I that brainstorms uh, survey research. And before we put it in the field, we'll uh, put it in front of uh, industry leaders uh, and, and our trade association client. Again, we're about getting the best and the best comes from collaboration and group mindshare, right? And uh, one of my favorite business books is written by Howard Schultz, who wrote uh, Pour Your Heart Into It back in the, in the 1990s. And he said, you know, winning is about crossing the finish line together. Mm. Crossing the finish line together. That's when victory is sweetest. And, and at the end of the day, that's what it is. You know, none of us needs to be the smartest person in the room. We just need to be a, one of the many voices in the room contributing so we get the best outcome. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, I, I love that collaboration is a very, very powerful resource. And I feel that it is very underutilized. It is not, people see it and you know what's really great about collaboration? So cool. It's free. Oh, right? it's, it, it's absolutely free, uh, but you'll get even more than you put into it. And your greatest takeaway is, is learning from others. Mm -hmm. learning from others you know we we're blessed with two ears and one mouth for a reason absolutely absolutely right, right? so <laughs> for a reason and and that's so we could listen and learn brilliant so dan as we wind down i'm just so grateful to have um, started my day with you and i'm just so thankful that you were able to come back and i i don't see this as being your last time on the on the pocket chain <laughs> podcast um Final thoughts for our industry leaders or our business leaders or even our consumers who yeah. are listening today. Yeah, actually, I, I do. Thank you for asking that. So first and foremost, I would encourage your industry leaders to go to uh, Amazon.com and buy Reimagining Industry Growth. Uh, and it's essential that you read it because what you're going to learn is you will learn the power of ecosystems and collaboration and coming together and working towards win-win solutions where everybody wins. So that'd be the first thing I would say. The second thing that I would say is that instead of focusing on political solutions, focus on five, 10, 15 year long-term strategy and leverage your ecosystem through your trade association relationships to really figure out what the solutions are to issues around supply chains. Mm -hmm. And along with that, other solutions, especially as they relate to energy. Energy is important. And for consumers, you absolutely have a role in whatever solution or solutions there would be. You know, wherever you, you know, if you're in the United States or in Canada or wherever you are, you've got elected officials and uh you've got the ability to persuade persuade by telling them what your reality is, what your costs are, and encouraging them to, to collaborate and find a middle ground where everybody wins. Fantastic. That's great advice. What about our consumers? Think about those, those poor sods paying $5 at the pump. Yeah, that, to me, that's, that's where they write to elected officials and they just say, I understand why you feel and how you feel the way you do. But I want you to understand what my gas prices are and what my food prices are right now. And I'd like you to 
work with all sides and come up with a middle ground um, and long-term come up with solutions that reduce the carbon footprint. But in the meantime, let's do this gradually so as consumers, we all don't get squeezed out of the marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Dan, it's always such a joy having you join us. Thank you so much. I know, and I only messaged you like late last week. I was like, hey, you want to jump on a podcast? I haven't <laughs> talked for a while. <laughs> always feel free to do that. Always happy to talk to you. And uh, it was a, this was a pleasure. And uh, look forward to uh, letting the our network know that uh, we were back with Kate. I love it. I love it. Well, and and thank you, Pocket Change listeners, for spending another hour with Dan and I together and soaking in all of these great things. I hope you took lots of great notes. Um, if you're sick and tired of your gas prices and your food prices, let's write to those officials and let them know that we're not happy campers. And, you know, to that end, if there's anybody that you'd like to see us host or any content you'd like to see us feature, reach out. A call doesn't cost a thing. 